Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 31st. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at the weather forecast first thing, this coming from KCRG. It's a quiet morning across eastern Iowa with a mostly cloudy sky and temperatures in the low to mid-30s. Patchy fog has developed in our far northern counties, but most of the area has good visibility. Clouds will gradually clear out of the area this afternoon, and we'll have a mix of sun and clouds with very warm temperatures, thanks to the winds coming from the south. Highs today will rise into the 40s, with some places even reaching the upper 40s. Overnight, we'll have a partly cloudy sky with lows in the 30s. For Thursday and beyond, we'll be warm and cloudy for Thursday and Friday, with highs staying in the upper 40s. A few isolated rain showers are possible Friday night and into Saturday morning. This weekend looks lovely with highs in the upper 40s on Saturday and Sunday, with a mix of sun and clouds. We'll start next week with a mix of sun and clouds and temperatures in the 40s and potentially even the 50s. Now let's take a look at what we have on the front page of the Courier today. We have Lack of Trainers Hempers Efforts for Iowa to Recruit Psychiatrists. Story by Tom Barton. Dateline Des Moines. A lack of board-certified physicians needed to provide supervision, training, and evaluation is hampering efforts by University of Iowa Healthcare to staff residency sites under a state-funded psychiatry residency program created by lawmakers to address a severe shortage of mental health professionals in the state. Lawmakers passed and Governor Kim Reynolds signed a multi-million dollar public health bill in 2022 that included funding for up to 12 additional positions for each residency class at the university to work at five designated state facilities pending approval by the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. Legislators last year amended the law to create nine psychiatric residencies and two psychiatric fellowships to be completed by medical school graduates in conjunction with the State Department of Health and Human Services. The legislation provided $100,000 annually for each residency and $150,000 annually for each fellowship to cover the cost of training, starting with the current fiscal year that began July 1st. Once approved, participating residents would complete a portion of their training at state mental health institutes in Cherokee and Independence, serving people with serious mental illness. The Iowa State Resource Center in Woodward serving individuals with intellectual disabilities, the Iowa Medical and Classification Center at Oakdale, a medium-security correctional facility, and the Iowa State Training Center in Eldora, serving adolescents with a history of criminal justice involvement. However, only two of the five sites have been accredited, as the others lack required board-certified psychiatrists to give supervision training, and evaluation of residents. Jody Tate, clinical professor of psychiatry 
and vice chair for education at the UI, recently told lawmakers, and those psychiatrists at the sites have heavy clinical loads, Tate said, citing a need to be creative for undertaking the expansion. Quote, it's not going to be a sprint. It's going to be a marathon, Tate said. In its efforts to address barriers to accreditation, UIHC created elective rotations at four sites and added a board-certified psychiatrist at the state training school in Eldora by using telepsychiatry through a collaboration with Health and Human Services to provide supervision for a resident providing adolescent psychiatric care. Tate said UIHC also is collaborating with rural clinics to expand telepsychiatry to deliver outpatient care in underserved areas, starting with hospitals and clinics in Washington and Van Buren counties. Outpatient care is a required component for psychiatry residency training programs. UIHC also created a new one- to two-year public psychiatry fellowship for psychiatrists who have completed an accredited psychiatric residency training and who are interested in pursuing a career working with individuals who have complex health needs and or underserved populations. Fellows can practice independently and supervise residents, addressing the accreditation challenges, Tate said. However, UIHC received only one applicant who later declined the offer to participate. Tate said UIHC has seen unexpected interest from residents wishing to participate in the fellowship during their fourth year of residency. But that doesn't address the challenges UIHC faces meeting accreditation standards. Quote, what I worry about is recruiting, getting psychiatrists at these sites to be able to expand more and have more learners at these sites, she told lawmakers. Tate suggested legislators amend eligibility requirements under the Rural Iowa Primary Care Loan Repayment Program, established to address critical doctor shortages in rural communities, to include those attending a residency program in Iowa in addition to medical school. The program provides loan repayment incentives up to $200,000 for individuals who practice in specified locations for up to five years. Tate said that would help with recruitment, calling the current 60% retention rate of UIHC-trained psychiatrists, changes to loan repayment requirements, and state funding to increase psychiatric residents a, quote, winning combination. Quote, I think we're getting momentum, and I think we're going to get there, she told lawmakers. There were 212 licensed psychiatrists practicing in the state in 2021, down from 236 in 2012, according to Iowa Health Professions Tracking Center at the UI Carver College of Medicine, and 66% of Iowa psychiatrists work in Johnson, Lynn, and Polk counties. 73 of Iowa's 99 counties do not have a psychiatrist. Quote, I agree that loan repayment always helps with recruiting physicians to the state. So if there's a chance 
to expand our loan repayment program, I think that would help with recruiting physicians to the state, said Representative Ann Meyer, a Republican from Fort Dodge, chair of the House Health and Human Services Committee. Meyer suggested the possibility of giving priority to Iowa students, but opening it up to graduates in surrounding states, quote, if we're not filling enough spots. Quote, it's interesting we don't have all those residency spots filled because we don't have enough trainers, she said. Death penalty proposed for those who kill police officers. This coming from the Courier Des Moines Bureau staff. Dateline Des Moines. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced a bill Monday that would reinstate the death penalty for individuals who murder a police officer. A three-member subcommittee voted 2-0 to zero to advance Senate Study Bill 3085 with a proposed amendment for consideration by the full Senate Judiciary Committee. As written, the bill would make anyone convicted of first-degree murder eligible for the death penalty. But lawmakers said they would amend it to pertain only to someone who murders a law enforcement officer. For the death penalty to be considered, the person must be 18 years or older and have knowledge that the victim was a police officer. The act must also be intentional, and the offender must not be mentally ill or intellectually disabled, and must be a major participant in the commission of the crime. A jury or judge would need to find the defendant guilty and then decide in a separate proceeding whether the death penalty should apply. It also would require the Iowa Supreme Court to automatically review all death penalty sentences to examine whether the sentence is excessive or disproportionate to penalties in similar cases. Capital punishment was abolished in Iowa in 1965. Previous attempts to reinstate the death penalty have failed to gain traction in the legislature. Religious groups and others opposed to the bill said studies have shown the death penalty doesn't deter crime. U.S. states using the death penalty have a similar murder rate to states that don't use it, with opponents arguing the threat of capital punishment does not appear to prevent homicides. Others noted racial disparities in death penalty prosecutions and the inherent risk the death penalty carries of executing an innocent person. Since 1973, at least 190 people have been exonerated from the death row in the United States, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. Quote, you never get what you want because revenge does not reward you. That's all the death penalty is, is revenge, said subcommittee member Senator Tony Bisignano, a Democrat from Des Moines, who declined to sign off on the bill. Quote, frankly, life in prison without parole has to be one of the most painful, mentally torturing things I could think that you could go through, unquote. Bisignano also took issue with the fact that death penalty would only apply to law enforcement, who, quote, signs up for and are equipped for dangerous duty, and not extend to children killed in a school shooting. Quote, I think it's a political round. We keep playing with politics in election years, he said, and this cop-killer bill 
seems to be that thing that you want to put in your brochure. But I hope you'll put along with that that you excluded children killed in school shootings, unquote. Subcommittee member Senator David Rowley, Republican from Spirit Lake, mentioned Algona police officer Kevin Cram, who was shot and killed last year as he tried to serve an arrest warrant. Quote, a husband, father of three, son, grandson. That is who wants to be heard when this sensitive issue comes up, Rowley said. Quote, because their pain and suffering, regardless, goes on and on, unquote. Senator Scott Webster, Republican from Bettendorf, who chaired the subcommittee, echoed Rowley, quote, I know there's a lot of conversation about this doesn't deter anybody, but that closure that those parents need for the wife or the husband or the kids need should be considered also. He said, I agree with that. This is a difficult situation, and I believe we should back our police officers and our peace officers that work within our prisons. We should make sure that we realize and we know that they're out there defending us and we defend them, unquote. Lawmakers are also considering advancing a bill that stalled during last year's session that would bring back the death penalty in Iowa for murder in the first degree when it involves kidnapping and sexual abuse offenses against a child. Next, social credit scores. Financial institutions would be prohibited from declining to provide services based on an individual's beliefs or social actions under legislation advanced by Republicans on a Senate subcommittee. The legislation bars financial institutions from refusing to provide services based on a so-called social credit score, which is defined in the bill to include an individual's religious beliefs, behaviors related to climate change, refusal to participate in diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, and other social matters. Republicans and conservative advocacy groups that spoke at a subcommittee hearing said the legislation is needed to protect people who hold conservative beliefs from political backlash from financial institutions like banks, credit unions, and credit card companies. Republican Senators David Rowley of Spirit Lake and Lynn Evans of Centerville signed off on advancing the bill. Senate Study Bill 3094 to the full Iowa Senate Judiciary Committee. Democratic Senator Herman Kornbach of Ames declined to support the bill. Also, Texas Defense Letter. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd co-authored a multi-state letter showing support for Texas's border enforcement actions as the protracted standoff between the state's governor and President Joe Biden's administration continues. Byrd and Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes co-led the letter, joined by 24 other Republican attorneys general and the Arizona state legislature. In the letter, the attorneys general argue that Texas has the constitutional right to conduct border enforcement at its southern border, including setting up razor wire fencing. The U.S. Supreme Court last week cleared the way for Border Patrol agents to cut razor wire at the Texas border after Texas Governor Greg Abbott sued to prevent Border Patrol 
from intervening. The ruling did not impact Abbott's ability to continue placing the razor wire. Abbott has declared the rise in illegal border crossings an invasion, saying he has a constitutional duty to enforce border policies. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds last week joined most Republican governors in a statement defending Texas's actions at the border. Quote, While the Biden administration has opened the door wide for drug cartels, traffickers, and potential terrorists to cross our border, states have been left to fend for themselves, Byrd said in a statement. Quote, If the Biden administration won't do its job to secure our border and keep Americans safe, it should step aside to let the states do the job for them. Iowa proudly stands with Texas in this fight. And that's a quote from Brenna Byrd. Cedar Falls man arrested following standoff with police. Story written by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Cedar Falls. A Cedar Falls man has been arrested on warrants out of Bremer and Marshall counties following an hours-long standoff at his home Tuesday night. Ryan Jeffrey Klink, 46, was detained after members of the Cedar Falls Police Department's SWAT team surrounded his home at 1910 Rainbow Drive. Officers first went to the home around 4.30 p.m. Tuesday because of Klink's outstanding warrants, according to police. He allegedly barricaded himself inside and refused to exit. Authorities blocked off a section of Rainbow Drive during the incident. Clank was eventually detained at 9.45 p.m. He was charged with interference in connection with the standoff. Court records show he was also detained on a parole violation warrant in connection with a Marshall County burglary charge. He had served prison time for allegedly taking a Yamaha four-wheeler from a barn in Rhodes in 2016. He was released from prison in January of 2021. Then in March 2021, he allegedly threatened a woman with a baseball bat when she was trying to drive her 15-year-old daughter to school in Janesville. He was arrested for assault while displaying a weapon. In April 2021, he apparently failed to show up for an arraignment, and a warrant was issued. <laughs> Illinois teenager arrested following 100-mile-per-hour chase in Waterloo. An Illinois teen has been arrested after he allegedly stole a minivan in Waterloo and later led police on a high-speed chase that ended when he crashed. A resident in the 400 block of Ricker Street called police around 9.30 p.m. Sunday to report his Toyota Sienna had been stolen, apparently while it was left running. Hours later, officers spotted the vehicle leaving the Legacy nightclub on Sumner Street around 10.25 p.m. and headed into oncoming traffic, according to police reports. Authorities attempted to stop the Sienna, but the vehicle continued on heading up East 4th Street, and then turning onto Donald Street, reaching speeds of up to 110 miles per hour in a 55 miles per hour zone. The driver eventually lost control, and the vehicle rolled several times on Donald Street. Officers arrested Martavian Marzon McDowell, 18, 
of Crest Hill, Illinois, for eluding and second-degree theft. Bond was set at $10,000. Officials believe the teen had planned to drive the stolen minivan back to Illinois. <laughs> Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds pitches change to controversial AEA overhaul bill. Story written by Caleb McCullough. Dateline Des Moines. Governor Kim Reynolds pitched a number of changes in a proposed amendment to a controversial bill that would overhaul the state's area education agencies. Reynolds previously said she would propose changes to the bill after state lawmakers said they received a deluge of complaints in response to the proposal. The amendment has not been filed with the legislature, but it was shared with lawmakers and published by the school administrators of Iowa. Under the proposed amendment, the state's nine AEAs would be allowed to continue offering education services like professional development and literacy programs, as well as media services to school districts who request it, if approved by the Department of Education. Under Reynolds's original proposal, AEAs would have been restricted to providing only special education services, which are a central piece of their current function. Reynolds said the proposal was needed to address Iowa's lagging test scores for students with disability. The AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. In a statement provided by a spokesperson on Monday, Reynolds said she introduced the changes after hearing feedback from parents, teachers, and other stakeholders. Quote, from the start, my focus has been on improving special education for Iowa students with disabilities. After introducing the bill, I met with legislators and heard feedback they received from parents, teachers, and school superintendents, Reynolds said. Quote, while we agree changes to the AEA system are necessary, our amendment allows us to address some of the issues schools raised. We made significant changes that support teachers and staff without compromising the students this bill prioritizes, unquote. Reynolds's new proposal would keep intact a $35 million property tax levy that schools can use to pay for AEA's educational services, but remove a $33 million property tax stream that funds the agency's media services. The education service funds could be used for media services. The amendment would also dictate that all AEA services be, quote, reasonable and consistent with current market rates for such services, unquote. The amendment would send state and federal special education funds directly to schools, who could then decide whether or not to contract with the AEAs. If they do not, schools would still have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities and could obtain that instruction from a third party, like a private company. The amendment would move back the deadline for schools to opt into the AEA services from April 30th to February 1st in future years. In the first year, the deadline would be June 1st. 
Under the proposed amendment, AEAs would have the option of adding special education coverage to a school district at any time after the deadline. The amendment would not change the proposal to bump the starting pay for teachers up to $50,000. The bill will receive subcommittee meetings on Wednesday. State lawmakers will take up the bill at 2 p.m., while House lawmakers will consider it at 12 p.m. Democrats said Monday they are not satisfied with the new proposal. Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, a Democrat from Waukee, said the amended bill includes more state control of AEAs than the original bill. Reynolds's amendment keeps much of the original language that would move an array of oversight, budget, and operation responsibilities of the AEAs under the Department of Education. Quote, it does nothing good to make this bill better, Trone Garriott said, and it is not a response to the concerns of violence. It's just kind of moving some things around, but nothing has really changed, unquote. Trone Garriott also said she was concerned about the amendment not reinstating the property tax funding for the media services to school districts. Quote, the previous bill prohibited media services. This bill allows them, but it doesn't fund them, she said. So both bills cut the money to fund the services. The schools don't get that money. It just goes away, unquote. Representative Sharon Sue Steckman, a Democrat from Mason City, said she thinks the amendment does not do much to address Democrats' concerns. Steckman said Democrats don't have a problem with reviewing the AEAs, but she said the proposal should have been made in consultation with teachers, parents, and AEA staff. Quote, it doesn't look much different than what we had, she said. And why you want to put all that power into the Department of Ed in Des Moines and take it away from local schools and local AEAs, I have no idea, unquote. Representative Stephen Bradley, a Republican from Cascade, said he passed the proposed amendment on to the superintendents in his district and has received mixed feedback. Quote, it's just like everything. I like this piece and I don't like this piece. So that's what we're trying to work through right now, he said. That bill is a work in progress. Bradley, who said he has grandchildren who receive AEA services, said he was watching the proposal and listening to feedback from stakeholders. He said he's received around 2,000 emails on the bill, mostly against it. Quote, everything depends on the final bill, he said. This is just an amendment, and I'm sure there could be some more, another amendment. So we'll see what the final bill is. I'm not going to make a decision till I see the final bill right in front of me, unquote. AEAs could voluntarily dissolve. The original bill limited the ability of AEAs to voluntarily dissolve and granted the Department of Education director the authority to dissolve and reorganize agencies unilaterally. The amendment keeps the power to direct reorganization and dissolution of AEAs with the Department of Education director, but also allows an agency to voluntarily dissolve if approved by the Department of Education. Reynolds's office previously said the bill is not intended to close any AEAs. 
in an appearance on Iowa Press on Iowa PBS this month, though Reynolds said she does not think Iowa needs nine AEAs. Quote, we need to do something big, she said. We need to reform. And I think by giving the districts the ability to hold the AEAs accountable, to decide what program works best for the students that they are serving, unquote. <laughs> Unverfirth immediately adding jobs in Shell Rock after facility expansion. Dateline Shell Rock, the company responsible for manufacturing Brent grain carts and wagons, is expanding its area labor force and adding on to its facility in response to increased demand. Unverfirth Manufacturing Company, Incorporated constructed a 5,000-square-foot addition and completed other renovations, allowing the family-owned business to immediately hire 55 more workers on top of the 400-plus people already employed at its facility at 27612 Temple Avenue, southwest of Shell Rock. Quote, we'd like to fill them all by March, but we will hire them as fast as they accept, said Jerry Eklund, communications manager. The company manufactures and markets tillage, seed and hay and grain handling equipment, along with pull-type sprayers, fertilizer applicators, and agricultural dual, triple, and specialty wheel products. In addition, attached to shipping, staging, and near-tire mounting in the center of its 13.5 acres, takes its footprint to over 600,000 square feet as a company that brings about new manufacturing and storage spaces for parts. And now, listeners, we just want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 31st, on IRIS, that's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, let's listen to this announcement. Imagine someone hiding a gambling problem. How exhausting it must be, seeing the losses pile up and feeling powerless to control it. Now imagine it's someone you love, your spouse, your child, your friend. Talk to them to understand where they're coming from. Because anyone can have a gambling problem. They just need help getting their life back. Call 1-800-BETS-OFF to get help for them and you. Now let's return to local news from The Courier. Waterloo Christian School would move into Cedar Falls High School until new homes are built on the site. Story written by Angela Sturm McLaughlin. Dateline Cedar Falls. Waterloo Christian School would move into the Cedar Falls High School building when the new high school opens in that city, eventually to be replaced by 43 single-family homes under a planned developer Brent Dahlstrom presented to the Cedar Falls Board of Education on Monday. Dahlstrom proposes purchasing the current high school at 1015 Division Street through his company, Panther Builders, to construct homes that range in price from 200000 to $300,000. Panther Builders would pay $2 million for the property and pay for demolition of the current building at an estimated cost of $1.5 million. The company would also seek approximately 
$5 million in tax incentives for the housing development from the city. Panther Builders plans to temporarily rent the building to Waterloo Christian School in the meantime, beginning in the 2024-25 school year. Waterloo Christian, currently at 1307 West Ridgeway Avenue, owns a 14-acre property in the Pinnacle Prairie area of Cedar Falls. Waterloo Christian plans eventually to construct a new school on that site at a cost of more than $25 million, according to architectural and financial projections. Quote, over the past four years, Waterloo Christian has explored a variety of expansion scenarios with hopes of being able to continue providing a world-class Christian education in the Cedar Valley. Ryan Hall, Waterloo Christian head of school, said in an email to the Courier, quote, the opportunity to move to Cedar Falls while we work towards eventually building a permanent school in the Pinnacle Prairie area ensures that we can continue to serve our growing student population. Dahlstrom told the board the proposal has not yet been discussed with the city of Cedar Falls. The Cedar Falls School District is building an $89.35 million high school on 69.6 acres in the 2700 block of West 27th Street. The entire project, including a football stadium, has a budget of $112.8 million. In high school girls wrestling, Cedar Falls sends 11 to state, wins Super Regional Team title. Story by Nate Thomas of the Globe Gazette. Dateline Mason City. Cedar Falls girls wrestling coach Allie Gerbracht wanted to get all 14 Tiger wrestlers to the state tournament. Cedar Falls will end with 11, three individual champions, and a team title at Friday's IGHSAU Super Regional at Mason City High School. The Tigers finished with 309 team points. Waverly Shellrock came second with 252 and a half. It was those two in a pack above the rest. West Delaware finished third, South Tama in fourth, and Charles City in fifth. It's still an astronomical number that advanced for the Tigers. No other school in Cedar Falls Regional ended with more than seven. The swing of emotions from across the fieldhouse and her thoughts for the three that did not qualify occupied the mind of Gerbracht. Quote, it seems like every corner there is something to be celebrated and then there is something that breaks your heart, she said. I mean, 11 is insanely good, and I'm super grateful for that, but it was the couple that my heart breaks for. Cedar Falls had no issue with the team standings. It was in control of the top spot the entire afternoon, and the placement matches on Friday evening were full of Tigers. Natalie Blake at 100 pounds, Lauren Witt at 110, and Macy Graves at 155, each claimed championships. Chloe Utzler at 105 and Annabelle Roret at 115, Emerson Bartlett at 145, Elizabeth Mills at 170, and Briar Lederman at 190, all finished second in their respective classes. 
outside of the strong Gohawks contingent at the placement matches, it was all Tigers on the day. Quote, Our goal is to always focus on ourselves and be better than we were yesterday, Gerbrecht said. Our goal today was to prove to ourselves that we can go out there and be at, beat the best and be the best, unquote. There has been a lot of progress with the team from a season ago, too. Most of Cedar Falls' team is still underclassmen. Qualifying 11 for the state tournament is finally a tangible milestone for all the improvement that has been made from a year ago. Quote, I'm thinking back to last season, and a lot of the, of the girls on our varsity that wrestled today had losing records or weren't on varsity, Gerbrecht said. That just shows how much work they put into the sport. If you want to do great in the sport, it's something that you have to dedicate yourself to, unquote. Now all that dedication flips to next week and the state tournament. Cedar Falls is expected to be one of the contenders in the team standings, and many of the Tigers should be amongst those on the podium at Extreme Arena in Coralville next Friday night. For now, it's back to work, attempting to stay injury-free and to try and make the goal of a state title a reality next week. Quote, I think it's staying in that mentality that we are the best and we can go out and compete with whoever steps across that line with us, Gerbrecht said. Quote, it's making sure we are mentally ready to go, mentally believe we could go there and win a title or a match and just believe in ourselves, unquote. Waverly Shellrock, relatively speaking, had a successful day on the mat too. The Gohawks advanced seven to next week's state tournament, including four champions, Camille Skult at 120, Lily Staw at 125, Kiera Jormessi at 140, and Madison Henricks at 235. All things considered, Coach Josh Meyer was happy with how Friday went. Quote, those days are exhausting. You put in all this work and get to the point, and there are a lot of emotions that go into today, he said. I'm proud of all these girls for their effort and battling back when things did not go their way. I would say it was an above-average day on what could have happened, unquote. Next week, the Gohawks get their chance at defending the state title. While Meyer said the team does not talk about past success much, some of those lessons will be helpful to this group. Quote, we talk more about just being better each day, and wherever we end up at the end of the year, we can be happy because you put forth your best effort, Meyer said. When you look at it that way, you try to get through this and not focus on that we have to do to win the state championship and improve daily to see where we can get. Cedar Falls Meat Cutter has another strong showing in national competition. Story written by Andy Malone. Dateline, Henderson, Nevada. One of the Cedar Valley's most talented meat cutters had another strong showing at Texas Roadhouse's annual National Meat Cutting Challenge on Tuesday. Rolanda Ruitz, a 12-year veteran at the Cedar Falls restaurant on University Avenue, placed sixth out of the nation's 25 
best butchers during his ninth contest, which she said is a fun experience each year. The Waterloo resident qualified for Tuesday's national competition at America First Center, just outside of Las Vegas, through his scoring at the regional level, but he narrowly missed out on advancing to the Kansas City Finals in March. If he had been in the top five, he would have had the chance to win $25,000 and be named the nation's top meat cutter. According to KSNV-TV in Las Vegas, the 25 and eventually five cutters were whittled down from more than a thousand. Quote, I did a very good job, but I'm already focused on next year, said Ruitz, while at work Wednesday morning after a late night plane flight. I think I need to practice a little bit more. His score is based on the yield percentage, the consumable portion of the meat he'd be able to serve after an hour with 30 to 40 pounds of beef, a log of sirloin, filet, and ribeye. The cutters are also judged on speed and quality during the contest, completed on the hockey arena's ice at a chilly 38 degrees. The National Meat Cutting Challenge is part of the Meat Hero Program, created in 2001 to recognize daily efforts of Texas Roadhouse meat cutters, a news release states. Participants hand-cut each steak served at the restaurants. Their work is displayed in the lobby, where guests are invited to choose their favorite steak while there for a meal. Quote, he takes pride in his work, knowing that every piece will be enjoyed by one of our guests, said Megan Lemon, a managing partner of Texas Roadhouse in Cedar Falls. Quote, He's the one setting up the meat display at the front of the restaurant, and he takes a lot of that from the guest's point of view. It's an art form, taking that big log and turning it into an enjoyable dinner, unquote. The Guatemala native attributed challenges this year to having to select his meat in the middle of the pack based on a drawing. Iowa has always had strong cutters, Lemon pointed out. In fact, Iowa was represented by a second cutter, Matthew Willis of Coralville, who finished in seventh place. Ruitz cuts 200 to 300 pounds during an average weekend day and is still striving for perfection, having previously scored higher. But he is already a master of his craft, according to those around him. Quote, he's one of the fastest on top, being the most accurate with the knife, said Trey Hess, Texas Roadhouse Service Manager. Now, in high school girls basketball, late rally comes up short as Waterloo Christian falls to Riceville. Dateline Waterloo. Riceville staved off a late rally from Waterloo Christian and held on for a 51-42 win over the Regents in a girls basketball matchup in Waterloo on Tuesday night. Trailing 35-30 to at the beginning of the fourth quarter, the Regents reeled off a 7-0 run to take a 37-35 lead on the Wildcats before Riceville closed on a 16-5 tear. Quote, we fight back, Waterloo Christian co-head coach Laura Johnson said. We are not going to get beat by anybody by 15, 20, or 30 points. 
That is not the kind of team we are, and that is not the kind of players we have. We have players who fight back. No matter what the score is, they're going to give it their all. That is always something we can be proud of because our girls really fight the whole time, unquote. Riceville forced Waterloo Christian into a situation in which the Regents needed a late rally via a dominant first-half showing. Riceville head coach Darcy Fair said she felt the Wildcats played focused and came ready to play on Tuesday night after suffering their lone defeat, a road loss to Dunkerton of 49-39 12 days prior. Quote, the loss made us refocus as a team, Fair said, coming out, playing hard, playing together. We needed that refocus. We have had a couple of good weeks at practice after that and are just really locked in on what we want to accomplish, unquote. The Wildcats took a 16-8 to lead in the first eight minutes, riding a 7-2 and run into the lead in the first four minutes of action. In the second quarter, the Regents scored five of the first seven points to trim the margin to an 18-13 Wildcat advantage. But Riceville, powered by Samantha Wilberding, who scored 10 points in the first half, extended its lead once more with a 7-0 run. A Kylie Dvorak layup just before the buzzer gave Riceville an 11-point 27-16 lead at halftime. Out of the break, Waterloo Christian surged with a 9-0 run, punctuated by a three-pointer from Regents senior Katie Costello to cut the lead to 27-25. According to Waterloo Christian co-head coach Brian Joe, the Regents returned to their identity on defense in the second half to create the turnaround. Quote, being able to communicate, talk, and doing the job early, Joe said. We just felt like at times we were not moving as well as we can on defense. We really challenged them to do that. That is when we saw things turning a little bit. You could see a tremendous difference, unquote. However, Riceville regained control of the game with a 6-0 to run to take a 35-30 to lead into the third quarter setting up the Regents' ill-fated comeback. Fair noted that when the Regents took the lead in the fourth quarter, she urged her team to remain calm during a timeout. Quote, you know what to do, Fair said. You have been in high-pressure situations before. Just stay locked in. Play solid defense. The points will come. Quote, they executed that well. We made a couple of changes defensively. That helped as well. That defense fed into our offense. The Wildcats remained calm and locked in during the stretch. With around two minutes to play, Wilberding connected with a tough layup to push the Riceville lead to 44-40. On the next possession, Riceville junior Talati Fair managed to steal and sank a fast-break layup which, ultimately, put the game out of reach. Costello led all players with a game-high 27 points, including five three-point field goals. Talati Fair led Riceville with 16 points. Wilberding finished with 12, and Dvorak added 11. Up next, 
the Wildcats face Osage at home on Thursday at 7.15 p.m. The Regents return to action on Friday with a road contest against Meskwaki Settlement slated for 6 p.m. And now, let's turn to the opinion section. This first editorial comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot, titled, Hopping on the Chief's Swift Bandwagon, and it's written by John Cullen. I'm not a big professional football fan, but I have been following the Kansas City Chiefs for the past few years, long before it became fashionable with the Taylor Swift fans. I probably got interested in the Chiefs because of friends and KC superfans Dave and Mary Dre, whose kids were in the school with ours, and I guess their enthusiasm rubbed off on me. When I was a kid, my favorite team was the Green Bay Packers, whose quarterback was the great Bart Starr. He was one of the best who ever played the game with a perfect sports name that sounds like it was conjured up by Hollywood press agents. Plus, they had a great coach in Vince Lombardi, who also looked like he came right out of central casting. The Packers won championships, while the team most Iowans rooted for, the Minnesota Vikings, well, try as they might, they just couldn't win championships, despite the heroics of quarterback Fran Tarkenton. I also liked the Kansas City Chiefs because they found a solid coach in Randy Reed, who was dumped by his former team, the Philadelphia Eagles, despite delivering winning records to the ingrates in the city of brotherly love. Kansas City quickly snatched Reed on the rebound in 2013, and the Chiefs were off to the races. They shifted into high gear in 2018 when unheralded backup quarterback Patrick Mahomes became their starter. Since then, the Chiefs have mostly dominated the NFL and are defending Super Bowl champions. Daughter Bridget likes the Green Bay Packers, while son Justin is a Dallas Cowboys fan. A big fan. Mary doesn't seem to care much for pro football. When Justin was 11, he begged me to take him to a Cowboys game in Dallas. In a moment of weakness, after weeks of his intensive pleas, I finally cracked and told him if he could find tickets at face value, we would go. I figured there was no way he could do it since the Cowboys, America's team, were a hot ticket at the time. When I came home from work one day a few weeks later, Justin announced that he was able to snag two tickets at face value from the Cowboys box office. He snatched my credit card number to seal the deal. So the family piled into the car in late December, drove through freezing rain in Oklahoma and northern Texas, and slid into the game at the Cowboys' old Texas stadium in Irving. Mary and Bridget stayed in the motel while Justin and I witnessed his beloved Cowboys fall to the visiting New York Giants. It was a trip we all remember, especially because of the white-knuckle drive back home. In a fitting climax to the trip, we drove headlong into a blizzard on Interstate 29 as we got back into Iowa. Just an hour from home, we finally had to pull off the impassable highway at Onawa. The only motel in town was full, 
so we were directed to the high school where we joined other stranded travelers sleeping on mats on the floor of the high school wrestling room. The kids had a blast. Not so much for Mary and me. This weekend, the Chiefs will play the Baltimore Ravens for the AFC title, while San Francisco 49ers will play the Detroit Lions for the NFC title. The winners will face off in the Super Bowl on February 11th in Las Vegas. Although the Lions will be the sentimental favorites against the 49ers because they've been so bad for so long, I have to root for the San Francisco because their quarterback is Brock Purdy from the Iowa State Cyclones, and his top pass catcher is George Kittle from the Iowa Hawkeyes. If the Chiefs and the 49ers both advance to the Super Bowl, I'll wish San Francisco well, but stay true to Kansas City and cheer for our neighbors down Interstate 29. Dave Dre would like that. Now from the New York Times, editor Jamel Bowie, if it walks like an insurrection and talks like an insurrection, while we await oral argument in Trump v. Anderson on the U.S. Supreme Court case that will evaluate the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to exclude the former president from the state's Republican primary ballot, it's worth revisiting the arguments leveled against the Colorado court's decision and, by extension, its interpretation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The first and most important one is that the plot to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, culminating in the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, was not an insurrection. Related to this is the argument that even if January 6th were an insurrection, it's still not clear that Donald Trump was an insurrectionist. As Jonathan Chait put it in New York Magazine, quote, And while the violent mob storming the Capitol was certainly engaging in insurrection, Trump kept just enough distance from it, goading the crowd beforehand, refusing to call it off, but not directing its actions, to create a sliver of ambiguity as to whether he personally engaged in insurrection, unquote. I've argued, relying on evidence drawn from an amicus brief to the Colorado Supreme Court, that the former president's actions make him an insurrectionist by any reasonable definition of the term, and certainly as it was envisioned by the drafters of the 14th Amendment, who experienced insurrection firsthand. If that isn't persuasive, consider the evidence marshaled by the legal scholars Ak Hill Reed Amar and Vikram David Amar in a more recent amicus brief. They argue that top of mind for the drafters of the 14th Amendment were the actions of John B. Floyd, the Secretary of War, during the succession crisis of November 1860 to March of 1861. During the critical weeks after the election of Abraham Lincoln, as pro-slavery radicals organized succession conventions throughout the South, Floyd, quote, an unapologetic Virginia slaveholder, Amar and Amar Wright, used his authority to, in the words of Ulysses S. Grant, distribute, quote, 
the cannon and small arms from northern arsenals throughout the south so as to be on hand when treason wanted them. When it became clear that President James Buchanan would not surrender Fort Sumter to South Carolina in late December, Floyd resigned to join the Confederacy. What's more, the Amars wrote, the insurrectionary betrayals perpetrated by Floyd and other top officials in the lame duck Buchanan administration went far beyond the abandonment of southern forts. They also involved, through both actions and inactions of Floyd and his allies, efforts to prevent President-elect Lincoln from lawfully assuming power at his inauguration, unquote. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 31st. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Just a reminder that you can listen to a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>